I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, is there really a right way to speak English? I always wanted to be a teacher of uh, English. This is wonderful Faison. She grew up in Washington, D.C., went to a mostly Black high school. You know, at that time, Washington, D.C. was kind of known as Chocolate City. It was in her high school English class, reading papers by her Black classmates, that Faison found her calling. I was like, come on, y'all, you know, we have to write. You know, we can't write like we don't know how to write. We got to get our grammar right, and we got to get our language right. She couldn't understand why her classmates thought it was okay to write the way they talked. I was taught or shown to be respected as an African-American in this world, as a Black person in this world. You simply had to alter your language. You could not talk the way that you talked around all of these white people who can judge and assess and determine your rank and standing in life. My father always told me, you have to remember that your face is always Black. And it doesn't matter how many white friends you have, right? You're going to be treated a certain way because of your face. So it was always this feeling of, we have to do this because someone else is looking at us. But she always felt torn by having to code switch like that. We've got all this vibrant language that really identifies that it's us. We got to do this kind of bland thing Right, and that's the way we always saw it, going from something like vibrant, cool, what we do, what we talk about, to this like bland stuff (laughs) that feels very (laughs) white bread, you know, and I don't mean that in terms of color, just Mm. at times it seemed to be without life and without character. And I think that that was what was so hard, you know, for me, you know, as a kid, but also for, for them, is that the writing didn't ask you to come from places that were truly yours. And that just became, okay, that's a thing that we do. How we talk matters. But why do we have such strict rules about what's proper and what's not? And why are we so quick to judge those who don't speak the way we do? I'm talking here about myself, I'll admit it. I am fine with people dropping their Gs or saying like, like a lot. I am still confused why nuclear has become an acceptable pronunciation of nuclear. It's putting the U in the wrong place. But what drives me crazy is when people use the word concerning when they mean worrisome. I know, it's nitpicky, but all of these language pet peeves we have are based on one basic assumption, that there is a right way to speak English. Well, this season on Top of Mind, we are assessing assumptions. So, is there really a right way to speak English? And what does insisting that there is say? intentionally or not, about our views on race or class. We all do a little bit of language code switching. The way you talk with your close family or friends is probably different from the way you speak in business meetings or formal settings. But for wonderful Faison, it goes much deeper. I think what I miss if, if I don't use Black language, right, um, is what I miss is my own emotional connection. Mm-hmm. It is so vibrant and colorful. Like, you can see the images of the thing, right? I, I almost feel like that. When I hear Black people talk in Black language, I can see an image, right? <laughs> right? And, and mm-hmm. that's not what happens to me with standard English. I have the words, and the theory will come, but none of the emotional connection, none of the vibrancy, none of the, I'm going to paint you a picture by just saying this. And I would believe that most people believe that about whatever language it is that's first to them that, that they hold dear. And so can you give me an example of what, what, what the difference would be writing a sentence in 
Would you would you call it black English or just well, I call black it, language? Well, or? yes, I call it black language because I do believe it has uh, its own unique grammatical uh, form. You know, so if I just gave you something typical when um, uh, we were we were talking this that and the other, and after a story that was particularly traumatic, I would say, "Well, ain't nobody that though." Right, right. And that's what I would say. Ain't nobody that though. Right. Now, of course, what is this sentence in like standard uh, English? At least nobody died. At least nobody died or no one died. And that just really sounds very bland to me. <laughs> like, right? There's something that seems a little bit more off. It's like, ain't nobody that <laughs> Right? And so there's this, there's this point. Now, when I said it at that moment, it was for the comic relief of this really tragic, oh my God, this is a really horrible story. And I guess the good thing is... Ain't nobody that up, <laughs> right? But again, she'd been taught by her parents and teachers and just life as a Black person in America that the blander version of English was better in mixed company and pretty much mandatory in writing if you wanted to succeed. So she embarked on a career path to help other African-American students master the game until she made a crucial discovery. It started for me in master's school, right? She was a grad student in English at East Carolina University, a historically black school in North Carolina. Before you can teach as a grad student, you have to train. You got to read the theory, the history. And it was in these moments in reading through, I was like, well, wait a minute. So people have been talking about this? You know, people have been talking about black language. You know, at that time, you, we had called it Ebonics, right? That's when it really got rolling. I, I didn't think anybody talked about it like in any type of scholarly way. Ebonics was just this, this, this slang, and it wasn't. It was, it was, it was bad English. It was broken English. It wasn't right. Like I did not know that there were. I didn't even know. It's at that moment when you recognize what a linguist is, right? Like, oh, these are the people who study what makes a language a language, right? And while some linguists still have arguments over whether or not this is a language or whether or not it's a dialect, they do admit that it is a thing. <laughs> and, that, and, yeah. and that it is beyond slang. So the, the light bulb for you was, if people are talking about this as an actual language and not just slang, mm -hmm. that means that you should be able to write compositions in that language mm -hmm. and have that be considered acceptable. It's just in eubonics or black, black right. language. And even if you call it a dialect, there are plenty of people who write in dialects, right? Um, and, and, and whatnot. So you, you have to trust experts. Like you have to be willing to let go of some of your biggest, highest biases if all evidence is simply pointing in the other direction. You, you know, and there's just been too much evidence to point in the other direction to just say, oh, that this is just slang, right? It's just too much evidence. And so what did that mean for you then as a graduate student teaching freshman English? Mm -hmm. What would you do when you would see some of this Black language in those, in those papers? It was about context for me, right? When you're teaching freshman uh, compositions, specifically the first section of it, at the institutions where I have taught, it was very much narrative, right? Personal essay based. So my students did not get penalized for any of that because they were actually writing within the genre, right? I tell you to write a narrative. I tell you to use personal stuff and give me your personal experience. I am not now going to, I tell you, tell me about a conversation with friends. I'm not now going to penalize you, you because you've reproduced it in the language, right, that you felt like it, it was in. I, I, like, I just don't have an issue with that. But Faison says that may not be true if you're writing a term paper or a business proposal. Some things call for a more proper or bland version of English. There's nothing wrong with that. The wrongness is when this is always and only forever the way to speak and write for eternity. There's something wrong when we say this, is, this will always be the measuring stick of academic writing. 
as if that's only one thing, right? Not that they're standard English. I write in standard English, right? I need to sometimes. It's just how it is, right? <laughs> right? Like, so nothing's wrong. But I don't want to be held to that. When someone asks me or say, hey, would you write an article for this chapter? I need to know that they're saying, wonderful, would you write? And that they're willing to take all of wonderful, right? And what that means when you're asking for my intellectualism, because when I think and when I'm researching and when I'm thinking about the world, I'm thinking about it in my language, right? And when I'm trying to interpret it and communicate it to other people, right, I need to be able to have those segues in to be able to use it Right. And to be able to come out of it and use something else when it's deemed necessary and come back out of that. You need to be able to flow in and out of languages and discourses because it's only what we literally do every day. Promoting that kind of flexibility has become a cornerstone of wonderful Faison's career. She got master's degrees in English and education and then a Ph.D. I go by Dr. Wonderful. She's currently an English professor at Jackson State University in Mississippi which is also an historically black school. And she heads up the writing center, helping students to polish their papers. I have students who have significant trauma around, like, writing. Everything was always vague. It was never any good. You don't have any ideas. This is always very bad. Like, after a while, that just gets to you. Usually when, when, when those who are coming into the writing center are concerned about their language, they say one specific thing. I need help with my grammar. And so and the subtext the subtext there is I need help writing more white well, the su- it depends, right? For many African-American students, that very much does mean white, but they'll use it like professional. And sometimes I've asked them I mean, like, do you mean do you mean white?" And they're like, "Yep, that's exactly what I mean, right? And they feel comfortable saying that because I am black. And I have been good at guiding students as well. I can see where we're getting a little bit of confusion here because it seems like you said this. Many times the students have some context problems and what a lot of instructors are having issue with is like the like their context, their actual content. But what happens is because they don't necessarily have a control, the students, of their ideas just yet, then all of the language is the only thing that a professor can see because the ideas aren't held together. What mm-hmm. I tend to say to students is writing's a choice. So you can keep it like this, right? I'm not your teacher. You know your teacher in this moment more than me. But what I think we can do is we can probably effectively get your message across. And by doing that, your teacher is probably going to be a little bit more amenable or some of the language choices will be a bit more palatable. Now, I have also had students where a teacher takes two points off for every single grammatical or language, quote, error. In those situations, you have to be honest with the student about your choices. A student's job is to pass the class, right? That's that's what they want to do. When you're put in that kind of bind, right, your writing is going to become hampered anyway. If you could create Mm -hmm. the perfect academic environment in which, you know, African-American and Black students could could communicate and learn at a university, you know, this is what we're going to allow and how we want this to flourish. What would that look like for you? Well, I would approach this first from teachers. What is it that you need your students writing to do? that you claim it's not doing? What is it that the student's writing needs to do in this genre, right? I teach essays. Someone else teaches reports. Somebody else teaches proposals. So the first thing is to be aware how many genres we're asking our students to write in. My second thing would be you critique ideas first, and, and that's what you have to do is help them organize ideas. What is it that they're trying to say? If it has gotten to the point where the language is actually precluding the idea, and that's any language, right? That's any language. This happens with standard English, too, where I can't tell what your ideas are because I don't know what you're saying. That is when we then need to address, okay, so what is it that we're trying to say here? Wonderful Faison is a professor of English and head of writing, rhetoric, and research services at Jackson State University in Mississippi. Professor, thank you so much for taking time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. You have a great one. 
focusing on what is being said more than how it's being said makes sense. It sounds nice in theory. But if we completely let go of enforcing the rules of English, proper pronunciation, verb tense, filler words, all that, won't communication fall apart? Most languages existed for centuries or millennia as only oral spoken languages with no rules. And when we get worked up about something like, like. What we don't like is who's doing it. That's really what bothers us. <laughs> Ouch. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. The English we speak today is not even recognizable with the old English that we had. This is Valerie Friedland. She's a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno, and author of, like, literally, dude, arguing for the good in bad English. English is a proto-Germanic language, meaning there was some common German ancestor that English, along with Dutch, Norwegian, Faroese, and German today, all shared. Uh, in around the 6th century, of course, um, the British Isles were vacated by the Roman legionnaires that had been there uh, holding it as part of the Roman Empire. And we had a lot of Germanic groups that came and set up shop. And so they brought with them the language of the North Germanic Plains. So we had these different dialect patterns in Old English. Eventually, they started to merge together as the French took over in 1066 and spoke French. And English became basically a colloquial language spoken by those in the lower classes. It's only in Shakespeare's time that people started to see that English could potentially be the language of institutions, the language of religion, the language of education, which had prior to that point been only Latin or French or sometimes Greek. So what did drive that? How did it become the language that respectable people spoke? Well, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with the printing press and also the Industrial Revolution. So things started changing. Prior to that, if you were um, sort of just a regular everyday person, you didn't have any status and you would never have status. And it's really not until about the 16 and 1700s where there was some potential for upward mobility. And that's when language starts to be important because if you can speak like those in the echelon above you, you can actually start to resemble them. You can start to become one of them. But if you sound different, then there really is no way to surmount those differences, even if you get money. So around 16, 1700, people started to emigrate to London from all over. A lot of uh, Northern British dialect speakers also came in, which were considered less prestigious at the time. And they started to gain in um, economic status. They became the rising Midland class or middle class, we would call it today. One of the last separators between them and the aristocracy was language. So they started to really try to emulate upper-class norms. And it's only when this mass emulation of upper-class norms came about that the idea of a prestige language really started to emerge. And then, of course, we get books and dictionaries and usage guides by the upper-class making a book on people wanting to sound like them. And so the upper-class then in England had a—they uh, were intentionally trying to preserve or create sort of like, here are the rules and this is what proper Brits do when they speak. Like who I, was sort yeah. of, who was defining what was proper? The purveyors, yes. the purveyors of good English. Um, one of the goals was just to standardize and codify English. I mean, English was not a language with any prestige. In order to get prestige, we needed more words that were um, elegant in terms of being able to describe things institutionally in science, in medicine, in art. We didn't have those words because those words had been French or Latin prior to that. So we started borrowing a lot of those words. Um, and it also was people that were just trying to write a grammar of English. They were trying to understand what English was. And we used Latin as our model. So even the earliest grammar of English was essentially a grammar of Latin written in Latin for English. And so it was really just trying to figure out what English was doing. And Robert Loth, who wrote the seminal grammar of English that was used as a school grammar book for, for centuries afterwards, was actually writing his son a grammar of English to help him learn Latin. So it wasn't like he was saying, look, this is how you have to speak. It was 
this is how Latin does it. So this is probably how you should do it in English. And all those rules that we don't break today, or we try not to break, like not splitting infinitives, not ending sentences with prepositions, not dangling your modifiers, because those were prohibited in Latin, he felt they should be prohibited in English. And that's where we get those rules. So it's this arbitrary rule system that just got imposed on English. And then we so firmly believed in it that we started to make it law. Who who so firmly believed in it? The people that were rising up in the middle class to start to try to emulate the speech of the upper class norms and the upper class in the 18th century started to think of themselves as better inherently and their language as inherently better. And obviously when you have power, it makes you feel like what you're doing is obviously the right thing and those that are beneath you socially are doing the wrong thing. So it just got this value judgment associated with a class-based distinction. And basically our grammar is a class-based distinction. And How much has English changed since then? Not much. The funny thing is we whine about it. What's really changed between 1800 and 2000 is not so much the language, but the rise of what's called the complaint culture about language. (laughs) That's where we start to say, okay, this is how I think it should be done. And therefore, I don't like it if it varies from this. Prior to 1800, we just didn't see that to the same degree. And that's probably because it was around 1800 when we really started to codify English. And so it was only the last 200 years that we have this idea that people should speak a certain way. Prior to that, I'm not saying people didn't judge other people, but the reality was that class distinctions were so cement in stone prior to that, that it was okay to sound like you were lower class because you were always lower class and you were never getting out of it. And what are some of the patterns that we have seen in the complaints about how English is being spoken or used? Well, that varies on the century. And what's so funny is what we complained about last century often becomes what we like this century and we pick new things to complain. So a great example would be uh, the pronunciation that's really prestigious in you know the New England area of the word ant, A-U-N-T. So if you're from the sort of you know more hoity-toity group, you might say, my aunt, my aunt is, is coming over to visit. The funny thing is around 1800, that was the new upstart and people hated it. You see pronunciation guides and elocution guides that are very popular at that time telling you how you should say things, saying, you know, don't do that. That's vulgar. That's common. No one wants to say aunt or rather or ask or answer, you should say answer and ask and aunt. So the a vowel that most Americans have there is actually the older vowel. But then because it sort of rose among the upper class in Britain in the 19th century, it became the prestigious form. And, and so, so it's just funny how things come around. Yeah. So, and I mean, would your argument then be that some of the ways that we're complaining about how things are used or or pronounced today could very well in 100 years be like the right way and the old way is considered, you know, uneducated. There's a very good chance of that. If things come and go, you know, some things get picked up and they're used for a while and then they they don't serve our purposes anymore and we give them away. Or we really hate them so much that we kind of shame people out of using them. But generally speaking, things like using um, L-Y on adverbs or using was and were for subjunctive case or using like as a conjunction, those are going to be in 50 years completely fine and no one will talk about them anymore. I'm putting my money on it right now and in 50 years, I want to have my bets paid off (laughs) that L-Y will no longer exist, like will be our conjunction of choice, and we will no longer have subjunctive case. So we won't say I I was versus I were, we'll just say I was all the time. Hmm. And L-Y, what do you mean L-Y will go away? So if I say slow versus slowly or quick versus quickly, I mean, if you ever listen to even the news or any shows, you can hear it there. I I went slow because I wasn't sure what was going on. Usually that should be I went slowly or he walked quick over there versus he walked quickly. It's really widespread um, to not see the L-Y anymore. So grammar mavens are clinging to that L-Y, but I would say the vast majority of young speakers don't use them at all. Well, not all changes catch on and and become the new thing. So what what helps you to predict what maybe is going to stick around a little bit longer? Are there, based on past, uh, on past experience? 
Usually it depends on really who is the purveyor of change. And it's hard to predict. I mean, things, we are always going to have these little changes that percolate for a while and then they don't get picked up and they die out a slow death. One thing that really tends to die out is vocabulary. Uh, Vocabulary is a very superficial level of language change. Words are here and there. I mean, words come, they go. They're very easy to pick up. They're very easy to stop using. And that's and that's where my my pet peeve concerning falls into that category. You know, at first when I started hearing people using it, even on the radio and by, um, you know, people in professional settings using concerning as, oh, it was very concerning to see this happening. And I'm like, oh, that's not how the word is. And I would march over to the Internet and look up Merriam-Webster. And I'm like, see right there, that is not an acceptable definition. It means, you know, pertaining to. And then at some point, probably about five years ago, when I was doing my little angry look it up in the dictionary moment, lo and behold, a new usage has appeared that says you can use concerning when you mean to say worrisome. And I was like, "Absolutely." well, there you go. I guess the world just decided that it was okay to use this, even though it's not the way it should be. And I have to just get over it. You have to, because half of the things you say started out that way. I mean, it is the the evolution of language, the power of language that we use things in ways that extend their meaning and make uh, whatever sort of some undercurrent of their initial meaning apply to a new case where they almost become unrecognizable from its initial sense. Who tends to be at the frontier of these kinds of changes in English? The very people we would not expect. So I think a lot of times people think those that are leaders in language are those that are writing the language rules and, you know, the upper crust. But in fact, if we look back in the history of language, and I'm talking a thousand years and also in modern English, it is those that are pushed to the edges of society that tend to lead in language. So females in the lower classes tend to be on the cutting edge of linguistic innovation. Why would that be? It seems odd, right? Because you would think that they would be sort of emulating the upper crust and the men who had the power. But those that are less controlling of their language because they have less to lose by letting natural linguistic tendencies take over, those are the ones that tend to use language to be more intimate, to be more personal, to be more uh, group-oriented, to stake a claim to identity in ways that cause us to innovate and do new things to stand out in certain ways. So we find this with African-American English today. So many of the new words that young people pick up are from African-American English because African-American English pushes the frontier and the boundary because there's less to lose by having these novel words that identify your personal experience that is different from that of the mainstream. And part of the innovation in African-American English is actually a sort of like, you know, claim to our own history, our claim to our own identity. And then you innovate in ways that oppose that of the dominant group. For example, the way I mark myself as different as a Southerner is through my language. I never want to be misconstrued as a Northerner, and therefore I'm going to say y'all as much as I want. And that marks me very strongly as a member of that group, and it separates me from being ever a Yankee. I understand what you're saying in the context of you know, the way you pronounce things as a Southerner, uh, maybe sometimes the word choice. And we've talked a little bit about how words can shift in their meaning. Um, But what about the stuff that's not really words? It's just filler, like, like, (laughs) or uh, or um, right? What value could there be in allowing people to do that all the time? I think there are two things you have to think about. First, if there was no value to them, we wouldn't do them, right? They, we don't just do things because what the hell, I'm going to introduce a new sound in English. I'm just going to walk around going ah, all the time because <laughs> that's going to make my language better. That's going to just be fun, right? We don't do that. Things come up in language because they serve a function. What the problem is, they don't always serve that same function or the function that's a f- good function for me may not be recognized by you as a good function. And that seems to be the problem with Amina and with things like like and you know. Those are two different categories of fillers. So uh and um are what we call filled pauses. And filled pauses serve very distinct purposes. The first is because we're going to say something abstract, complex, less familiar, or more difficult. And we find when we do studies on where people use um and uh, it almost always correlates with increases in cognitive 
processing, which means that you're searching for a word that's competing with a bunch of other words. So you might have to choose among a, a number of options. So if you're trying to come up with an adjective to describe a scene, um, there's a lot of adjectives in English that would do that. It's going to take a little while for your brain to decide exactly what the perfect adjective is. Or say you're at work and you're talking about something in construction, and those are words you don't use all the time. So again, coming up with a word that's less frequent, you're going to be more likely to um and uh because you just have to kind of work those neural networks a little harder to get it to happen. Yeah. But why do I use an um instead of just pause? Well, what is the problem if you just take a silent pause? Somebody might jump in and think it's their turn to talk because it's a turn transition point. If I um or uh though, it says, okay, I need a pause, so don't jump in. But it also seems to signal to your listener that you're going to give them something that's harder, more difficult, or new, which has a benefit to your listener because it actually seems to ramp up their cognitive resources, and they do better at retrieving that information than if you didn't use an um or uh. They're going to remember better if I say um before I say the thing. Not only are they going to remember it better, they're going to integrate that new information and how they process it faster than if you didn't use that. Because think about it, if um precedes things that are more difficult on a speaker's side, and we have evidence that they do that, then from a listener perspective, they know, well, um signals something complicated. Therefore, I need to really focus my cognitive resources on it. So here's the thing we think is awful that actually has some really positive linguistic benefits. And so what does like contribute to communication? So like is a really interesting word because it's so um, polysemous. And by that, I mean, it has so many different meanings. Like has always had a lot of different meanings in English. It's been around since about the 1200s. So not like as a discourse marker, obviously, but like as a adjective or a verb or express things like I like this, or it was similar to. So, you know, if you were um, ape-like, you were like an ape, right? So what's happened with like is now it's it's detached from its grammatical role, like a conjunction or preposition, and it's become what we call a discourse marker where it can move around the sentence to serve a purpose. The problem is many people don't recognize what that purpose is. You use it to express either a hyperbolic nature of what you're about to say, or that what you're about to say is not an exact fit to the meaning you're trying to portray, but it's roughly the idea. So if you say something such as, I hate how that happens. Like, I don't know, but I think it's wrong. What that like is doing at the beginning of a sentence is it's actually connecting what you're about to say as an example, as a sort of comparison to what was just said. So it's actually a linking device in that case Mm -hmm. where it's saying this sentence connects to the last one. But what if I say something like he ran like a hundred miles? Well, that again, doesn't seem like it's adding much, but what it's doing is it's announcing hyperbolic expression. It's saying, I'm doing this emphatically because I want you to notice it's emphatic. And the like here marks this emphasis. Or say I say something, I was like, I don't know. And he was like, yeah, you do. That like's called a quotative like, and it just simply replaces the verb to say to indicate that it's not verbatim. Because if I said, he said X, that means he verbatimly said this. But if I say, he was like, I don't think so, that could be sort of the gist of what you took from what he was saying. The verbs who say didn't allow us to do that very well. So like steps in to fulfill that function. So these are very subtle new functions it's serving because English didn't allow us to do that prior to this. And so younger speakers have really started to use like in that context. Older speakers tend to do that less. And we also find that with the uh, the preposition like, where it's sort of estimating he was like five or six. An older speaker would say about there. So I think what we have to think about is if about serves this, a function and say serves a function, then if you substitute one-to-one like for that, it's serving that same function. What we don't like is who's doing it. That's really what bothers us. It's new. We don't have that function for it in our own speech variety, and therefore it bothers us. So expand on that just a bit for me then. What would you recommend the thought process be when when I hear something that irks me? You know, when I have that reaction, oh, I don't like the way they're speaking, what might be a more a, a helpful way to approach that? I mean, I am a linguist and I find things that irritate me. You know, my children, I have teenagers, they say things and it bothers me. And it's okay. It's okay that you just like things are not what you do. I mean, that's human nature. What I think what we have to step back and think is, I'm saying this is meaningless and useless, and that is frankly not true. If you look at the linguistic science behind it, if you look at the history behind it, there is 
multitude of studies that show the value of these features. So what I need to do as a, as a listener that dislikes a feature that's in widespread use is step back and say, okay, it bothers me. I don't like it. I'm not going to use it myself. But it is not a statement about those speakers' value. It's not a statement about those features having no use. It's a statement about my own personal positionality or relationship to whether I use those features or not. And they are clearly serving a purpose for the people that do it. I think what we can do is tell younger speakers, when you're going to a job interview, you have to be aware that there is a difference in perspective on certain features. And then in those cases, you might want to limit your use. And I think if you understand where you use it, so you understand what the function of like is, you can actually limit your use of those because you'll know more strategically where to delete them. And, and that can really help also if you're trying to go that angle. But I think you just need to relax about it and say, okay, it might not be my thing and I might not like it, but it is a thing and it's a thing with value to those that use it. And so I need to just relax and I can have my own bristling at it, but I shouldn't be telling those people they're useless and that they are not good speakers because they choose something that I don't choose. And I don't need to be worried that somehow by allowing that to continue, we're going to degrade English or our ability to communicate. Well, that ship has sailed because if we're going to use language change as a measure of English's decline, then we have a lot of explaining to do because the English we speak today is not even recognizable with the old English that we had. So if we are you going to use that as our metric, what's new is bad, what's old is better, then English sucks, right? Then English is gone. Uh, you know, it's already declined. So no, we shouldn't think that. What we should think instead is people will adjust speech to what is useful for them over time because language as a communication system is what makes it possible for people to understand each other. That is the goal and the purpose of language. Changes to language never work against uh, economic and cognitive efficiency, nor articulatory ease and efficiency, which means your brain always works in a way that makes things easier to understand. Your mouth always works in a way that makes things more efficient to produce and also ensures that it's perceived properly. Those are the underlying rules of language. Most languages existed for centuries or millennia as only oral spoken languages with no rules. Um, and many languages are still not written. There are a number of indigenous languages that don't have a writing system still today, and they function just fine. So it is absolutely the case that we have rules. No language exists without rules, but it is absolutely not the case that writing those rules down in terms of what we think those rules are is A, correct in terms of what the actual rules of language are, or B, necessary for a healthy, evolving communicative system. Valerie Friedland is a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno, and her book is like literally, dude, arguing for the good in bad English. these pet peeves we have, these assumptions about the right way to speak English and why it's essential, are focused on just that, speaking. It's always about how other people should be using the language when communicating with us. I think we often think of the listening job as it just being a passive thing, but we do know that listeners play a really important role here. Like what? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Okay, so let's say we ease up on insisting that people speak properly because language is fundamentally about communicating and not about following rules. But there are still times when communication fails to happen because of how someone speaks, aren't there? Melissa Baysberg heard stories about that all the time when she taught English as a second language. I was mostly teaching graduate students who were really proficient already in English. And a lot of them wanted to reduce their accents because they really felt like their accents were getting in the way of communication. And this was really surprising to me because I felt like we were having really seamless communication. But one day, a student in her class shared a story that would shape the rest of Bayes Burke's career. The student's native language was Mandarin Chinese. And he'd gone to try to get a haircut. This is a situation where you don't need to have any English proficiency to accomplish the communicative goal of getting the haircut, right? Yeah. 
there's a very limited set of things that you get done at a barber shop and you can take a picture and show a picture to the person, which should be, you know, sufficient. The person at the barber shop said that they couldn't understand him and so they couldn't give him a haircut. And I realized that there was probably more going on there than just the speaker's accent. And it made me wonder kind of how much of this issue was on the talker's part, how much of this issue was on the listener's part, and um, how we can kind of help communication become more seamless for both the speaker and listener. There are a million things that you could do to to try to make that communication easier. And I think that's why it was particularly striking to me as the listener probably not wanting the communication to be successful or not caring about the communication being successful. Bayes Burke was in grad school for linguistics at the time, and that story about the haircut convinced her to focus her research on the side of communication that's generally ignored and rarely blamed when things go wrong. The listening job, I think we often think of as it just being a passive thing. You know, we think about overhearing speech that we're not even trying to to understand. You know, the sound waves sort of just float into your ears and you can't help but understand them. I think it's also the case that English in particular, in the U.S. in particular, is thought of as being such a monolith that that everybody sort of speaks English. You know, people go to varieties of European countries and don't know any of the language in those countries because the expectation is that somebody there is going to speak English enough that you can get by. And so I think with that privilege comes a little bit of being sort of laid back about the fact that we don't have to work all that hard. And so anything outside of that norm feels, I think, a little bit jarring and disorienting because all of a sudden we are having to work harder. Melissa Baysburg is now a linguistics professor at the University of Chicago, and she runs a lab that studies why native English speakers so often struggle to understand people with foreign accents. One is that we know that people's attitudes play a really important role in how they understand unfamiliar accents. And if I'm talking about understanding, I can talk about it in two ways, right? One is literally, can you understand the words? Could you like write down the words that somebody is saying? And the other way is to think about, do I feel like I can understand them? Do I feel like it's hard or easy to understand this person? And what we found is that if you ask people, and in this case, these are college professors, you're asking them to transcribe some speech. They're equally good at that, regardless of whether they have good or bad attitudes toward non-native speakers of English. But they think it's a lot harder if they have a bad attitude toward non-native speakers. And you might think like, how do I ask people about their attitude? Yeah, what does a bad attitude speakers? mean? Yeah. People are willing to tell you all sorts of stuff when you ask them anonymously on a piece of paper. And it's pretty easy to differentiate between somebody who says things like, you know, I think international students bring so much to our university, bring so much to my classroom, versus people who say, I would rather not have these international students in my classroom because they make teaching harder, right? So that's a pretty negative attitude toward an international speaker. And this is a really interesting sort of chicken and egg problem. Is it harder for them because they have this bad attitude <laughs> or do they have a bad attitude about it because it is there's something cognitively or perceptually or whatever the case might be that's harder for them? And that's something we haven't unpacked and untangled yet, but we do know that listeners' attitude plays a really important role here. There's also a motivation element, which she's tested in some interesting ways. So normally we have people come into our lab and we give them a set amount of money at the end of the experiment. We say, you're coming in for half an hour. We're going to give you, let's say, $15. We had a second group of participants who came in and we said, okay, we're going to give you $9 no matter how you do in the next 30 minutes. But we're going to pick a random sentence in the middle of the experiment and we're going to pay you $2 for each word you get right. So you could earn up to $21. And what we found that is... I think really exciting and really interesting is that people are better if you pay them based on their performance. This isn't hugely surprising because people respond to all sorts of incentives. But what I like about this particular study is they start off better 
they adapt more quickly over the course of the experiment and they end up much better than the participants who are just paid a flat rate. Those participants learn too, but they just learn at a slower rate, which to me suggests the role of the listener is critically important because it's not just the case that they're kind of maxing out their ability to learn. They're able to learn even more if you compensate them in a way that's meaningful to them. Yeah. When I think about what what might be the incentive, like how could you incentivize a listener? What what kinds of motivation might exist out there besides money? Because anyone, yeah. with, people with accents can't walk around and be like, hello, I'd like to nope. communicate with you and I'm going to pay you in order to do this. Yes, I will give you $10 to have a conversation, right? <laughs> and if yeah, it that's succeeds, not great. I'll give you 20 more. I mean, sure. Yeah. So it's not going to be financial, but what would the certain kinds of motivation, other kinds of motivation might a listener find to really want to focus mm-hmm. in when they're communicating or practicing? So I think a couple of big ones are thinking about how this impacts kind of business and employment situations. If you're working in a global community at all, if you're working for a company that has offices in other places, you might feel more motivated to communicate with people in the other office if this is going to provide you with more promotion opportunities or better, you know, a better workplace overall. And then the other uh, big place where I think motivation can play a huge role is in education. So if you are having an instructor in these situations who has an accent, you should, I think, be pretty motivated to learn to understand that instructor. And one thing I'm interested in exploring in more detail is how we can help students understand that they can improve at these tasks. Because I think just telling students that they can get better, we know this actually from one of my collaborators, Charlotte Bond's work, if you tell people they can get better at it, they get better at it. And so I think that kind of communication with students, with employees can be really, really important in helping make things just a little bit easier for somebody who's spent a lot of time trying to learn a language. But here's the really key thing Baysburg has discovered in her lab. That people can get better with just a tiny bit of practice. That's a really exciting finding because it suggests that it's not about the talker improving. Nothing is changing about the talker in these situations. It's just the listener doing a little bit of practice and getting better at this. And the way I like to think about this is if you're in a lecture or you know watching somebody on TV or in a movie, at the beginning, you could have a hard time understanding them. But within about 30 minutes, you can get better at acclimating to their accent and to understanding them. So that's something we know the listener is bringing to the table because we're not changing anything about the talker. And does it work? When I practice, I'm practicing on the, you know, Mandarin Chinese speaking English accent. Mm-hmm. But then I have to go practice on the Spanish-speaking English accent, and then I have to go practice on the French-speaking English and the German, like, you know, like all these other foreign accents. Do I have to practice on each one individually in order to hope to be good (laughs) at communicating when I encounter that? So if we train you on just a single talker, you get good at that talker and you don't get good at any other talkers. But if I train you on five different talkers with the same accent, you get good not only at those five talkers, but also at a new talker with that same accent. Okay. If I train you on five different accents, you not only get better at all five of those accents, but you get better at unfamiliar accents as well. So the most sort of bang for your buck comes from practicing with a bunch of different accents. And then the hope is, and we think from the science, that the actuality is that you get better at new accents too. What does the practice actually look like? So for us, because we're working in a lab, we just have people come in and listen to speech on fancy headphones and transcribe it. And they do this for a couple of days. And they're listening to someone speak English with an accent, a foreign accent. Yep. And we have them do this for 30 minutes a day for a couple of days in a row. We have them transcribe things only because we need to have both a measure of them actually having done something during during the experiment. And the other reason we do it is because otherwise, when you bring people into a nice quiet room where it's not very bright and stimulating, they will fall asleep if you don't have them do something. And so there's no particular reason why we're having people transcribe other than the fact that it requires them to pay attention on every single trial to what they're hearing. Well, what would you have um, them do if they weren't? Like if if I were going to try to practice because I wanted to yeah. get better, would I just listen to somebody with an accent? Right. 
So we do have some uh, a study that demonstrates that um, if you combine active practice and passive exposure, so imagine, um, you know, you're actively trying to understand somebody practicing writing something down, and then you just have it on the radio in the background while you're cooking dinner. Um, a combination of active and passive exposure is equally effective as just active practice alone. Hmm. So international radio stations from a variety of different countries exist where they are recorded in English by people who have accents. And, you know, it's a nice way of also getting some global news in while you're while you're listening and probably in a more fun way than coming into my lab and writing down sentences for a day. So what's the mindset that you would recommend going into one of these conversations that includes someone with an accent? The two pieces of advice I would give to anybody who wants to be better at these sorts of things. The first is just understanding that successful communication is the goal for both parties. And it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to to not understand something perfectly the first time. It's okay to ask for clarification. All of those things are going to help communication be more successful. And the other piece that I would add to that is, you know, just a little bit of empathy about the fact that these people in general have done a lot of work. Anybody who's studied another language can understand just how hard it is to learn another language. I feel like When you're trying hard to really understand somebody, it's a simple kindness that matters so much to the person who you're in conversation with. And I think this just little bit of kindness can make such a big difference. I also think, you know, from a less touchy-feely perspective, it gives us just more. It gives us more opportunities. It gives us more viewpoints. It's better for us from an economic perspective to have people from a variety of different viewpoints and language backgrounds in conversation with one another. And there are more, I mean, from a very practical perspective, there are more non-native speakers of English than there are native speakers of English in the world. And so, you know, chances are you're going to run into one of them, whether it's at home, whether it's when you're traveling. It's very hard to be isolated and only speak to people who have the exact same language background as you. It is increasingly challenging to do that, I think, in our society. But for me, the most important thing is this kindness because I see how this impacts real people who are trying to live their lives and often doing something that's really a big challenge. So if you can try just a little bit to, um, you know, the analogy we use a lot in my lab is like moving a couch. If you're moving a couch, if you're just one person doing it by yourself, it's a real hard and sometimes impossible thing to do. And if you're moving a couch with two people, it can still be hard. It can still be awkward and uncomfortable, but it's possible, right? And so we encourage people to help move the couch. Melissa Baysberg is a professor of linguistics at the University of Chicago and director of the Speech, Perception, and Production Lab. Top of Mind is a BYU Radio production. Today's episode was produced by Samuel Benson, Amber Mortensen, and me, with help from James Hoops and Abigail Tolley. Our sound designers are Brandon Lewis and Spencer Hewitt. And if you would do us a favor, leave a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. That helps convince the app algorithms to recommend us so more people can find Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.